0: Online on digital radio and television and on the ABC Listen app. The Tasmanian Country Hour with Fiona Breen on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Last year, there were 32 deaths on farming properties across Australia.
2: The main causes we're seeing are tractors and quad bikes. They still continue... Um, to be the leading cause of death across Australia, which is very unfortunate.
1: We'll unpack those stats a little bit more and we'll meet some seasonal workers using sport to find their feet in a foreign country.
3: I've been working for Hillwood Berries in Tasmania for seven years. Soccer is uh, one of the most popular sports in Timor. Last year we did a soccer and with the local people, that's one of the positive things that we gain during our stay in Australia.
1: A really lovely yarn by Larissa Smith there. And if you'd like to have your say anytime during our program, send us a text 0438922936. Also this week, we're planning to bring you the latest agricultural policies from the major political parties in the lead-up to the state election. And today we'll begin with the Liberal Party. The state Liberal Party announced its agricultural policy uh, on the weekend. And joining me on the line is the Liberal Party spokesperson for Primary Industries, Joe Palmer. Welcome to the Country Hour, Joe. Yeah,
4: thanks, Fiona.
1: Now, first up, uh, Ms Palmer, as the Liberal Party member for Rosevere in the Legislative Council, you're not up for election uh, this election, are you?
4: No, I'm not. Uh, being in the upper house seat of roseville. Uh, my election is until 2026. So obviously just supporting my team and uh, yeah, you get yep. the fun of an election campaign without the stress of being up for election.
1: If it is fun. I mean, you've been out and about on the campaign trail with your colleagues and a busy weekend this weekend with the Liberal Party's promises for agriculture.
4: Yes, we certainly have been and, uh, you know, every aspect of what we have put forward as part of our agricultural policy has come from, uh, you know, for me personally, uh, for the last two years, just consulting and talking and sharing with farming families, with our agricultural peak bodies, uh, with those organisations that are the framework and and the foundation of our agricultural industry, hearing from them, listening to them and then going okay what what will have meaningful change for them and that's certainly the basis of what we as a party have put forward
1: ah so not pork barreling as there have been some accusations fly, flying about the place
4: I have to tell you my research primarily sits at the kitchen table opposite farmers and their families you know tell me what's happening tell me where you think you know we should be investing where should we be looking at going with our policies Um, that's the sort of work that I've been doing over the last you know two years and as needed we've responded um, certainly in this policy but also you know well before the election was even called, we were responding to what we knew that the sector needed.
1: Well, I might just unpack a couple of those promises. One uh, was fair compensation for landowners affected by plans to build new power lines over farmland. A big issue, particularly in the north and the northwest of the state. Now, I note that other states have agreed to payments per kilometre over 20 years, uh, quite good payments, 200,000 in New South Wales, 200,000 in, in Vic, um, and the Energy Infrastructure Commissioner has suggested that other states follow, and it's a game changer. Is this something you might embrace?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Look, we've been watching quite closely what has come out of other jurisdictions, particularly what came out of New South Wales. And again, you know, really talking um, with our peat bodies, really talking with our landowners. And I think the biggest thing that's come out of those conversations is first and foremost, they want to be treated respectfully and we're absolutely making sure that that happens but they also want to be part of the conversation so a really big part of our policy is to recognize that you know there are impacts from you know, some of these big projects like we're seeing with the Northwest Transmission Development. We know their impacts on landowners. So we want to work with them. We want to work with TAS farmers to ensure that, you know, we are looking at the development of a strategic benefits payment and that they feel they have a real voice in that space. So that
1: would make it a, a lot more attractive in some cases, probably doubling the payment landholders would ordinarily receive, 200000 per Kilometer, for example, over 25 years, uh, you're really hoping to break that bottleneck?
4: Yeah, what what's really important to me and what's really important to our government is that wherever we go moving forward, that landholders, farmers and their peat bodies have a voice in that space. That whatever is put on the table is what they feel is fair, that it's reasonable, that they've been treated with respect, and that you know, it's it's going to work for them. So that's the whole basis of what we have put forward is to say, you know, you have to be part of this journey. We need you as a government to be part of this journey.
1: Okay, so a work in progress. Uh, Mandatory CCTV footage and cameras in abattoirs. This was something uh, perhaps foreshadowed or or after, you know, recent uh, revelations in abattoirs, five abattoirs across Tasmania. So you're, you're considering making that mandatory?
4: Uh, yes, we've already made that announcement. Actually, Fiona, in direct response when we saw um, the video footage that that came out towards the end of last year, uh, so very quickly our government established our task force uh, to ensure that we do everything that we can in this space, as our community would expect, as certainly as our farmers would expect. And we've already announced that uh, we will be mandating video surveillance in all Tasmanian abattoirs, uh, including temporary um, uh, video surveillance systems uh, and we're also you know really looking at the provision of workforce development and training for processing staff. The, the worst outcome here is that in five years time, Tasmania's in the position that it is now, where we've had this footage come out and it's just been, you know, so difficult for our farmers to to have to see that. They're some of the greatest advocates for animal welfare. And so I will just, just they're happy.
1: yeah, just on that 3.2 million over four years to the RSPCA, is that sort of in response to some of these issues coming up?
4: Uh, yeah, I think it's really important that the RSPCA is um, very much involved in this conversation and, and the extra funding that we've put into them is, you know, an expectation, of course, that they would boost their inspectorate capacity, which, you know, is a really great thing to be investing in. But the RSPCA does a lot of work that I think in the community we may not see. And one of them is on the task force. Um, you know, I contacted them as soon as this happened. I said, I need you to be on that task force advocating what do we need to to do and they stepped up and they were there. So we have to make sure that they're properly resourced, that they can respond to situations like this. Now, farmers, a lot of farmers
1: have been fairly unhappy about the federal government's new biosecurity protection levy. The levy's due to start on July 1 and will help pay for the government's $1 billion a year biosecurity plan. So it's about uh, 6% that the agriculture sector is going to be slugged. But you oppose this tax?
4: Yeah, look, we've got some really big concerns about this. I mean, first and foremost, biosecurity does not just rest with farmers. Uh, bios- good biosecurity benefits everyone, all of us, right across Tasmania. And so it seems very unfair that, you know, it would just be a new tax that would be slugged um, at farmers. Well, when it's we not just
1: farmers, are, though, is it? It's, it's 6% for farmers, the rest, a majority for taxpayers,
4: Yeah, I think, but a big portion of it does sit with farmers, and that doesn't seem to be fair. We just don't have the details on this. We don't know how the funds will be collected. We're not sure what the outcomes are meant to be. And let's remember, our farmers already invest heavily in biosecurity. This is part of farming. This is part of their everyday business. So we have a problem with the Federal Labor government singling them out uh, to be paying more than everyone else should be paying.
1: Okay, uh, Joe Palmer, uh, another one, probably just finally because we're running out of time, but uh, $1.5 million for the Midland Agricultural Association to establish Tasmania's first wool school. Well, Campbelltown will be pretty happy with this.
4: Well, I reckon they will be. I think right across the industry, people are very happy with this. This is just very, very exciting uh, to know that we're going to be improving um, access for upcoming shearers, our, our wool handlers, our wool classes, to make sure that we have a really strong local workforce here. And, uh, you know, th- this is a really exciting part of the announcement of our ag policy. All right,
1: Joe Palmer, who is the Liberal Party spokesperson for Primary Industries. Thanks so much for joining The country out today.
5: Thanks, Fiona. For all those yearnings for truly outstanding entertainment, I have an idea of what might cheer you up. You'll find a trove of Academy Award winning and nominated films on ABC iView. Let's play. Like Imitation Game,
6: It's Beautiful,
5: American Sniper, Her, and Spotlight.
7: There's a story here, and I think it's an important story.
5: Brooklyn, Carol, and so many more. Bon appétit. Always free. Always Outstanding on ABC iview.
0: It's the Country Hour with Fiona Breen on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: And we just heard from Joe Palmer, uh, the Liberal member for Rose Fears in the Legislative Council and the spokesperson on primary industries talking about what the Liberal Party is promising if it gets back into government. We hope to bring you uh, the spokesperson from the Labor Party a little bit later in this week. But next, a recent report has been released outlining the number of on-farm deaths and injuries recorded last year. In 2023, 32 deaths occurred on farming properties across Australia. Farm Safety Research Manager at Ag Health Australia, Kerry Lynn Peachy, says that while it's a reduction in numbers from the previous year, work must continue to ensure safety is paramount.
2: The main causes we're seeing are tractors and quad bikes. They still continue Um, to be the leading cause of death across Australia, which is very unfortunate. And we are now that we are starting to also see side-by-side vehicles come into play. And a majority of these are because people are not wearing the seatbelts that are fitted within the vehicle.
8: What sort of work is going on in this space at the moment?
2: Uh, Look, there's lots going on. You know, there's research, development efforts that are focusing on farm safety campaigns. Um, There's regulations and enforcement. Um, New South Wales have been lucky to have financial incentives to put in safety products, for example, the um, fitment of operator protection devices to quad bikes or changing to a safer vehicle with the purchase of a side-by-side vehicle,
8: Um, awareness campaigns, training, education. What can be done sort of going forward to, you know, really bring down those numbers and make sure that at the end of the day these farmers are returning home to their families? Well, look, safety, it's
2: not just the responsibility of the individual manager worker. You know, it, re- it requires a coordinated effort from everybody within the agricultural industry. So whether that's the farmers, the industry organisation, government agencies, or the wider community, we need to work together through research, education and advocacy, you know, to ensure that everybody comes home at the end of the day. And by doing this, we will reduce the impact of farm-related incidents.
8: And are you seeing a certain sort of age group that is more susceptible to these incidents?
2: Look, as identified in the report, a lot of them are over 50, more well, half of them are over 50 years of age. And look, that is probably in sync because the average Ava farmer is now approaching 58 to 59 years. So that's probably why, because they're much more, have higher exposure within the industry.
8: Do you think that there's more in terms of what people can do personally in terms of wearing helmets and that sort of thing? Does that really need to ramp up? Oh,
2: look, absolutely. Safety has to come second nature, like in our everyday life. It's just like you, you know, for example, you get in the car and you put your seatbelt on, but you do it without even thinking about it. So this is what we've got to get trying to get safety to do. So, you know, when you approach a machine, you think, well, OK, oh, that task I'm doing today, is that going to be the most safest you know, vehicle I could use, for example, or that piece of machinery that I'm using, is all well this guards in place to protect me? You know, is everything in good working order? Because I need to ensure that I'm going to be safe while I undertake that task.
8: And are these the sort of things that need to be, you know, drummed into kids and yeah, from a young age?
2: Oh, look, definitely. You know, we, uh, but we as parents or we as farm managers, whatever it be, a lot of kids do, uh, whether they do, whether they live on the farm or whether they visit the farm, managers and farmers have to lead by example. So we have to be wearing our helmets on a quad bike. We have to be wearing our seatbelts in the farm vehicles or the side-by-side. So we need to lead by example because if we don't lead by example, the kids will not follow
1: And it was Farm Safety Research Manager, Ag Health Australia, Kerry Lynn Peachy, speaking with Lily McCure. Now, more than 18 months after right to repair legislation passed for the motoring industry, it has not been extended to farm machinery. And an expert researcher says it's just not good enough. Since July 1, 2022, car manufacturers have been required by law to share service and repair information with independent repairers. But there's no such requirement when it comes to farm machinery. That means farmers and their independent mechanics are locked out of repairing machines. So when breakdowns happen, machines must be repaired by the manufacturer or authorised repairer. Professor Leanne Wiseman, Chair of the Australian Repair Network at Griffith University, says despite federal authorities highlighting the need for farmers to have the right to repair, it hasn't happened.
5: Some of the challenges that we're seeing with repairing ag machinery has really been identified by the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission and the Productivity Commission is that there's really serious competition concerns in the agricultural machinery aftermarket in Australia. And what why this is, is that really our farmers can't get access to the information, spare parts and tools that they need to fix their tractors when they break down. They really... Um, forced to go back to authorised repairers um, of the manufacturers but a lot of these farmers are the diesel mechanics they have got the skills and knowledge they've always been tinkering with their tractors and it's just that these tractors are now software enabled that they really don't have access to that software and that's really what the barrier to repair is for ag machinery.
3: And you must hear a lot of frustration over that when, as you've said, a lot lot of the time farmers have got the skills to do the repair work, they've paid hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars for these machines and they can't repair what can often be pretty minor issues with them.
5: That's exactly right. So what we're seeing and we're hearing from farmers all around the country is the fact that they've always been able to change a sensor or a filter or or whatever it might be on their tractors. But now, because they're so sophisticated with the software that's embedded in them, if they try to do anything with their tractors, they potentially either um, will breach their warranty or... Basically, the machine will be bricked. It won't work if they try to tamper with the software. So this is really causing such a challenge for them. The industry is no different to, for example, the automotive industry. And we've just seen Australia's first right to repair law being passed last year. Because our independent mechanics were in that same position. They could not get access to the information that they needed and the diagnostic software that they need to fix our cars. And everybody always thought that they'd have to take their cars back to the... Um, dealer or the authorised manufacturer to get those warranty or service and repairs but it's recognised it creates such a competition issue to deny independent repairers that information and with our farmers that as you say their diesel mechanics their fitters and turners are all really high high skilled and they've been doing this for decades they should really be able to fix their tractors.
3: Is there any reason why that that uh, legislation around right to repair in the automotive industry can't be extended to farm machinery?
5: No that's a very good point and that's exactly what the ACCC and our Productivity Commission has said both in their inquiry reports in 2021. We have a scheme it's it's um, governed by the ACCC it's got teeth it's working Um, for automotive repair we just know that agricultural machinery and heavy vehicles have been excluded from that scheme um, from its introduction but it's already been indicated that there may be um, that scheme should be revisited to include agricultural machinery and we're not seeing any movement from the equipment manufacturers to be more open and transparent um, with their repair and diagnostic information they have the opportunity to share this information with farmers and independent repairers and that's actually not happening so if it's a case that we need to regulate we've really got all the recommendations sitting there and we have a scheme that will work for agricultural machinery
1: that was professor Leon wiseman chair of the australian repair network now we've had a couple of texts responding to uh, the spokesperson joe palmer for primary industries for the liberal party uh, Luke says the RSPCA don't regulate abattoirs or animal welfare on commercial farms, biosecurity task force animal welfares do welfare do and Scott from Lagana says it's a bit rich if Minister Palmer is saying it's unfair and unreasonable to slug farmers when she admitted they don't have the details on that biosecurity levy and workers workings of the policy. You can't bag it out if you don't know what's included. Now, soccer is a universally loved sport. For seasonal workers from Timor-Leste employed on Berry Farms in Tasmania, it's more than just a game. This summer they've been playing for bragging rights against rival farms in a friendly soccer competition. It's also helping them find their feet in a foreign country. Larissa Smith has the story.
9: It's a real party vibe at this soccer pitch in the middle of Launceston. This is no ordinary game, though. The players are all from Timor-Leste and they pick fruit for opposing Berry Farms.
10: We're all friendly, but we all, you know... Even at a growing level, we want to grow the most uh, berries per hectare or, or yield or have the fastest pickers. So there's that rivalry, and now it's stemmed out to a soccer rivalry. So Simon Dornoff
9: is the farm manager at Hillwood Berries. He was approached by his pickers to set up some friendly games against other berry farms in the area. So teams were selected... Training began and uniforms were ordered.
6: Can't take credit for that. Uh, that was the guys' idea. They said, "Oh, we want a Mountford Berry's shirt. We want to, we want to be part of the Mountford Berry's team."
9: Gemma McKinnon manages the seasonal worker program at Mountford Berries.
6: My father-in-law said, oh, we, if we were in England, we'd be very rich, wouldn't we? We've got a soccer team after us. It's something that they, they, they talk about. And now that we've played a few games against some of the other farms, it's, oh, we won against this farm and we, we've lost against this farm, so we've got to play them again to try and beat them. And, and it's this, there's a talk around the farm while they're there.
9: For the fruit pickers who have grown up playing soccer back home, these friendly games have helped them feel like they belong here.
3: Uh, I'm Antonio Pinto. Uh, my call name is Atoy. I have been working for Hilut Berries in Tasmania for seven years since 2017 until now. Soccer is uh, one of the most popular sport in Timor. Last year, we did a soccer uh, with the local people. I can say it's like we, like socialize with the. People in in our around us, like community, yeah, part of the community. So that's one of the uh, positive things that we gain during our stay in Australia.
9: Uh, my name is Fernando Costa Barreto. They call me Nunes. I'm playing for Hillwood Bears. <laughs> I was amazing today. We hope uh, We hope We keep going with this activity for the future, so that you know, so that to make us like feel feel not only for work but we, we also have fun you know like we here during six months or some people working for one year you know we, we just keep working you know if we just keep working we don't doing like extra you know activity like that make your life feel boring you know we need to create something for for everyone to make them express themselves you know through other things so that you know not only work for money but we, we also need to make some fun for everyone
11: yeah my name is, my full name is Suarez Watim Oliveira. Uh, I'm working in Mount Forberis. It's not a big team.
9: Yeah. Not too bad, and you've got a goal.
11: Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the, the first goal, we are so happy with that, yeah. Uh. Who was it? Uh, his name is uh, Esau, thank you. He's a gun player? Yeah. He's good, he, yeah. Yeah, he's good one, uh, on the win, yeah. yeah.
9: What would you normally be doing at home?
11: I'm studying, uh, but I have to leave my study because my father was dying. I have to left everything so I choose to come into work and to help my family. I'll
9: let you get back to the team. Good luck for the second half. Yeah.
11: Thank you so much.
6: Yeah.
10: This is the seasonal worker vibe. Like, um, you know, There's been footage previously of the Samoan boys singing in um, hotel quarantine all those years ago but we see that regularly on the farm. They'll be singing in the field or a laugh. And then that reverberates across the tunnels with other guys laughing just out while they're working. So that real positive energy is what uh, flows through the whole seasonal worker community. And that was on display today with just the energy of doing something fun that's away from work. So these type of events, I think, as we grow into um, having you know, longer term workers, we have a community of workers that they're all, they all know each other, you know, into farm relationships too. Um, that mean we can have more things like this. It's not just a Hillwood community on itself. They're, they've got their own friends in other farms and other um, parts of the state.
6: The pastoral care side of thing is more about um, their welfare while they're here, so taking them to doctor's appointments and, and making sure that they're looked after in terms of um, their finances and the food that they're eating and, and making sure that they're healthy and well. Um, so these extra things is not necessarily prescribed that we have to, but I, we feel that it just brings that um, extra morale into the group. They enjoy their time here in Australia while they're here and that's sort of our aim is that we want them to be here, we want them to earn money and we want them to really enjoy being here while, while they're um, working and earning money for their family The
9: crowds have been amazing and I can just see the smiles on the faces of the players that they just had a thoroughly great time.
6: Yeah they did I think there was a winner, I think Mountford won that one. We're sort of friends with the other farms, you know the bosses at the other farms so we have good bragging rights that our team has won this, this one so <laughs> that's good <laughs>
1: And that was Gemma McKinnon from Mountford Berries at Perth in the Northern Midlands ending that report from Larissa Smith about the friendly soccer games between berry companies in the States North and if you want to see a video of the teams in action just head to the ABC Tasmania Facebook page
12: to have a look at that. Let's cross to the newsroom now for headlines with Ellie Ward. Thanks, Fiona. Health policies remain the focus for the major parties on day 19 of the Tasmanian election campaign. Adding to the weekend's commitment, the Liberals have announced funding for a bulk-build mobile GP clinic and plans to establish a GP specialist service for children with ADHD. Labor's pledging $70 million towards a new elective surgery centre in Launceston and to leasing 20 public beds from a private Launceston clinic. The Australian Border Force says it's only able to stop a fraction of the huge amounts of illegal drugs being smuggled into the country as it warns of a dramatic uptick in the importation of ketamine. The ABF says the amount of ketamine seized on Australian borders has more than doubled in two years with close to 900 kilograms seized last year. New data has revealed nearly 3,500 investment scam websites have been shut down by the corporate regulator ASIC since July last year. And Tasmania is well-placed to host the Sheffield Shield cricket final after defeating Victoria at Bell Reve Oval today, chasing 442 for victory. Victoria was dismissed for 384. Full bulletin at one.
1: Thank you, Ellie Ward. Uh, time to cross to the Weather Bureau now. Good afternoon. Mark Anolak.
7: Good Fiona. what a what a weekend has been
1: Oh my goodness, wow, yes, managed to get a little sail sailed in on Saturday afternoon, but it was pretty gusty uh some I sort can of
10: imagine, westerly yeah.
1: thing didn't even try on Sunday uh, just crazy <laughs>
10: <laughs> yeah
7: I'm not surprised actually we had some pretty we had a pretty vigorous cold front move through um uh, overnight so the sun, Saturday night into sunday and, and on Sunday we did record some very strong wind gusts of the order of 120 to 130 kilometres an hour in some places. So, um, yeah, I'm not surprised it was a bit windy. Thankfully, conditions have eased quite markedly since then. The westerly flow or the southerly flow that sort of followed that cold front did produce some shower activity, particularly about the western and southwestern corner of of the state. Um, Mount Bob's uh, North Boomerang, 17.8 millimetres since 9 o'clock yesterday to 9 o'clock this morning. Um, Scott's, Peak had, Scott's Peak had 16 millimetres, Strat Gordon um, 14.8. So there were some pretty good falls about the southwest corner, but generally elsewhere, falls were between 3 to 8 millimetres. Uh, since 9 o'clock, we haven't had anything really.
1: Oh, tell us about um, the next roughly... few days
7: yeah so we've got um southerly flow producing fine conditions across the north of the state and northeast um partly cloudy conditions for southern parts but as we move through this afternoon to the evening we'll see a high pressure system drift across the state so light winds um clear skies for most of the state continuing into tomorrow the high pressure system will be over the Tasman Sea, directing a northerly wind, so we can expect fine conditions um, uh, about the state again. But there is another cold front moving through on Wednesday, and that may produce some showers about western and southwestern parts of the state. Only briefly by Thursday, we should see that start to clear up um, and we're back to fine conditions through Thursday afternoon and Friday under the influence of another high-pressure system. So um, it should be a mostly fine week ahead. Just that little glitch on Wednesday with the the wind change coming through, producing some showers about the west uh, during the day on Wednesday.
1: All right. Are there any warnings?
7: We have a strong wind warning for coastal waters from St Helens Point to Tasman Island, just uh, in the east there. uh, And the winds are easing, so hopefully that warning will will ease back later today. But uh, that's the only warning we have, the coastal warning for uh, waters from St Helens Point around to Tasman Island.
1: And now tell me about the rest of the coastal waters and swell.
7: Okay. Currently Cape Sorrel has got a... West southwesterly swell of around 4.1 meters, with a maximum wave height of 7.3, and the swell out there is expected to hover around four to five meters, gradually decreasing to three to four meters this afternoon. Um, the swell across the north, the westerly swell of one to me- one meter, uh, and in the east, we've got a southerly swell of two to three meters. Um, probably getting up to 4.5 to 5.5 metres offshore in the south. Generally, winds, we've got a southerly component to the wind, so south to southeasterly winds at 10 to 20 knots, reaching 20 to 30 knots uh, just in the eastern waters for, for another few hours over, uh, this afternoon.
1: And you've just got that wave rider boy in the north at the moment.
7: Yes, we don't have um, Mariah Island. We're still waiting for that to be uh, recovered and, and redeployed. So uh, just the one Case um, uh, uh wave rider boy which has currently got a west southwesterly westerly of four metres.
1: Fantastic. Mark Annalak, thanks for joining the country out. Uh.
13: Thank you.
7: Cheers.
3: Afternoons with Joel Reinberger. Who did you used to catch leeches for?
13: There was a laboratory in Mowbray in Launceston, and I had a pond near the house that had the swimming tiger leech in it. See flashes of black and yellow in the, the dirty water, and they'd stick to my gumboots. boots. Now I'd drop them into a fowler jar. When I had enough, I'd sell them for ten cents each. I thought you were gonna tell us a tale of dragging your little sister through a pond. <laughs> but I'm glad it was happier than that.
1: Joel Reinberger.
13: On the ABC listener.
1: Weekdays from 1.30 ABC Radio Hobart. And we've got a few texts in following Joe Palmer's interview at the start of the program with the Liberals' uh, policy before the election on agriculture. Uh, and this is from Wade and Helen Rockliffe. Uh, Joe Palmer stating that the Liberals are all about working with landowners affected by transmission line upgrades in preparation for Mariners Link. We and many others affected landowners asked the former Minister Guy Barnett repeatedly to meet with us to explain the benefits and discuss our concerns. And we were all stonewalled at every turn and instead sent a generic email telling us it would put downward Pressure on electricity prices, which we now know is a national liberal catch cry. And that was from Wade and Helen Rockcliffe. Thanks for sending in that text. Uh, and what else have we got coming up? Here we go. If you're on the East Coast today, you might spot a large bunch of cyclists heading towards Swansea. Please be nice to them. They're taking part in the Pedal Cure for MND event, riding 600 kilometres over the last six days, raising funds for motor neuron disease. There's a strong farming contingent, contingent, which includes agronomist Chris Cheek.
11: So, we had two nights at the Devonport Football Club and we did a loop out inland from Devonport and out to Penguin and back. And then, second night was uh, up to Launceston and then a loop around the Tamar Valley. Started at Lonnie again and then through to Bridport for the next day. And then, yesterday, we've come from Bridport to St Helens.
9: How have you handled the climbing?
11: Uh, like, quite seriously, I think yesterday was the hardest physical thing i've ever done like it was just extraordinary yesterday but much better i think we've all coped much better than we expected the uh, the human body is remarkable and it's adapts into a new regime like yesterday was so hard i think if it had been on day one i wouldn't have made it but because we're into it and getting used to it and learning from other people it's um yeah we we all got through anyway yes and, and everyone's the, here
9: and you had richie port join you at some point too
11: yeah, dear. Yeah, not not yesterday, but the day before. He came, He rides the Bridport uh, route quite regularly, so he came w- with us on that route and, and was great. Simon as well. They got around I, I didn't ride with them. They were obviously out with the fast boys at the front, but um, yeah, everyone got a chance to to catch up and have a chat, which was really good. Yeah.
9: And so, who is part of your crew? Because you you do come from different walks of life, but involved in agriculture.
11: Yeah, yeah, so we've split up, there's, there's so many people, there's 130 riders just about, so we split up a little bit on abilities. We have a group that has some experienced guys in there to sort of help a few of us that don't know what we're doing quite as much, so it's been fantastic. But there's a real, um, there's definitely an agricultural feel, like a lot of, uh, a lot of interstate visitors here, obviously, and, and, and a lot of them are in farming, so we're acting as uh, tour guides as we travel around. Pretty much everyone's very interested in what goes on in Tassie agriculture, obviously, especially those guys coming sort of from the grain belt. So yeah, it's been really good.
9: And speaking of grain, you you were um, involved in trying to raise money for this event by encouraging grain growers to donate some of the, a portion of the sale of their grain when they delivered to XLD. How did you go there?
11: Yeah really good yeah yeah it was just an idea rather than just asking everyone for money directly that something that was um a little bit simpler and something that was uh easily accessible for us working in the farming area and all our friends and colleagues and uh clients producing grain so it was really successful we uh we handed over a check on uh saturday night for $17,000 so wow. um we we're really 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 happy with that yeah we 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 um We had a few people that uh, harvested a little bit earlier or a little bit later, and even they had made the commitment, so they sort of donated to us personally as well to catch up. So, yeah, it it was ragingly successful.
9: And I should ask, how is Ian Herbert holding up? Because he was part of the driving force behind this crew getting on the road
11: yeah he was yeah uh, no he's been really good yeah um a little bit up and down yeah went out <laughs> way too hard yesterday talked himself up way too much yesterday morning <laughs> and then and then went downhill rapidly but now we're all getting through well it, um it's such a i mean i guess um leading up to the event it's it's just we're going to go on this great big ride but when you actually get here and start talking to the people next year you realize how many people have been affected you know, directly with MND and um, that's sort of changed the perspective a little bit for all of us, I think, as as the days have gone on. I rode with 12 people yesterday and, and like half of them had had someone really close to them, sister or or, or wife or whatever, die. So the whole thinking you're struggling and um, not sure how you're going to go, it's sort of changed quite a bit once you get to know a lot of these people.
9: Fantastic. And you'll end up in Swansea today?
11: We should end up in Swansea today. We've had, it, had an unbelievable run with uh, the wind. We've had it behind us for five days and we're going to head straight into it uh, southerly down the coast today. But I think the views will keep the interstate visitors uh, entertained enough they won't notice, hopefully.
1: And that was Northern Midlands agronomist Chris Cheek chatting to Larissa Smith about taking part in this year's pedal cure for MND bike ride and keep a a lookout for them and be nice to them. They're doing a bike ride for a big cause uh, and, there's a lot of farmers involved with that particular bike ride. Uh, we just had a call in from Ron Rutledge from Nutrien. He's uh, talking about the Wiener sale at Power Runner. A record number of cattle are expected on Thursday uh, from all over the state, uh, probably in excess of about 5,000 Cattle at Piranha on Thursday, so you might want to pop along and have a look at that. A lot of cattle moving through the system, which is a good thing. Now, keeping an eye on your cattle or your sheep can be tough work, particularly about 5,000 or more, especially for older farmers working across large properties. But a drone photographer in Victoria says he's developed a world-first app that can take the hard work out of counting and monitoring livestock. Edward Barraclough hit upon the idea when his father, who's in his 80s, has had no plans to leave the farm and asked if there was a way to watch his sheep from the skies. Fiona Broom went to find out how it all works.
8: Can group is one of Australia's biggest med-
3: We've designed it so that the farmer just needs to take the drone outside, turn it on, choose his his paddock and press go. The drone takes off by itself, flies out over the paddock, videos all of the the animals there and at the same time tells you immediately how many you've got, where they are and if any are in trouble.
0: This is Edward Barraclough. Edward's a drone photographer and he's showing me his latest venture, a drone controlled livestock monitoring app. It's driven by artificial intelligence and and Edward reckons when it hits the market it'll be the world's first drone livestock monitor.
3: At the moment, we are, we've built that AI model. We've um, done a whole lot of customer research and validation. I've been through a few pre-accelerator courses with a group called Farmers to Founders. They're supported by LaunchVic and a few other of the government-funded uh, initiatives. They've been a fantastic help to help teach me all the things I need to know about startups. Right now, we're working with developers here in Melbourne to integrate the AI model into the flight control app. That should be ready in a few months, and as soon as that's ready, we'll be ready to launch. Um, I've done about more than 300 interviews with customers to, to, to confirm all of this. We've got early adopters in a few states now, and um, we're looking forward to, to having a really exciting launch. Now, I just popped one of these drones up. When we uh, use this for the animals, I generally fly it about 100 metres up, and that way the animals tend not to react at all. They don't seem to notice it. Yeah. But you will notice as it takes off it's a little loud. And so that's at about, uh, it's only about five metres or so up. But you can still hear it quite loud. But as soon as I go up, go up a bit higher. And that's just at 50 metres now, and so you can barely hear it.
0: Yeah, that just would blend in with regular farm yeah. noises, wouldn't it?
3: But then if I go up to 100 metres where we use the drone hand software, you almost can't hear it at all. and so that's Almost p- can't see it either. Yeah, <laughs> at that point the sheep don't tend to notice, they don't react. The same with the cattle next door and things like that as well.
0: And so how did you come to create this software?
3: As I said, I've, I've been a drone photographer, an aerial photographer, a little while now, and I've used all types of different programs with it. My dad works uh, has a farm up in New South Wales, and uh, I was up there one day taking some photos with a drone. Uh, He's in his mid-80s. He looked over my shoulder and said, you know, if you could check the sheep for me with that, I could stay on the farm longer. Because at his age, you know, getting around, just trying to uh, open the gates, drive around up and down the hills to check the sheep is not the easiest thing in the world. Now I'd used plenty of different programs for mapping and surveying and I knew there were agricultural programs for cropping and I thought there had to be something for animals. So I looked into it and the further I looked, I saw that there really wasn't. There wasn't any autonomous uh, systems built for, for monitoring livestock. After a lot of research and looking into it, I um, got in touch with a machine learning engineer out of Sydney University and together we built the AI model and uh, from there it's been a a real slog to try and do customer validation and make sure that it is something that the market can support and get the technology going and it's looking like we'll be ready to launch in a few months and all going well, we'll be the first to market.
0: How much work is involved in counting your flock or counting your herd? Uh, Have you heard from, from producers that this will be a time saver for them?
3: Yeah, that's right. Um, generally, I mean, it depends on the size of your property and, and the terrain and things like that, but you'd be spending a minimum of an hour or more up to you know three or four hours, depending on where you are, just getting into the ute or the buggy, going out, opening, closing gates, getting through the paddocks. I've taken this around to quite a number of different farmers around the place and their general response has been initially, oh, drones, I'm not too sure about that. But once I show them, what it looks like to look down on the property and look down at the animals they're like wow that's amazing I I could you know that could save me so much time I could uh do so many other things if I could just send it off from my house um so yeah generally it's it's likely to save quite a lot of time and money and staffing costs
0: and in terms of getting to grips with the technology and how to use the software and the program is it something that would take a lot of time to learn
3: Not really, because we've tried to make it as user-friendly as possible. Um, We've tried to make it as autonomous as possible. So basically, all the farmer needs to do is on their computer to define the boundaries of their paddocks. That then automatically goes to the app that controls the drone. And then all you need to do is take the drone outside, turn it on, choose your paddock and your livestock, whether it's sheep or cattle, and press go. The drone takes off, flies a, a route that is predetermined, comes back and tells you instantly how many sheep and ch- or cattle you've got, where they are, and if any have any issues.
0: Farmers do sometimes have a reputation for being a bit tech-averse, but I love that it was your dad who's in his 80s who said, can you write me a software for that?
3: Yeah, exactly. Um, it's, it's a funny misconception. Uh, we have a view of farmers as being tech-averse and, and sort of being against anything new. But actually, agriculture is the largest adopter of new tech of any industry, but they have to know that it works, that you have to show them that it works.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. Farmers don't have time to waste on things that don't work, do they? Uh, Edward Barraclough, founder of the Drone Hand Livestock Monitoring App, speaking with Fiona Broom. Now in 2007 a single swarm of Asian honeybees came off a shipping cans from Papua New Guinea. And despite the, the odds their population has not only survived but thrived. There's up to 50,000 colonies of the invasive bee spanning a 10,000 square kilometer area from the Atherton Tablelands to Wonga Beach and Cardwell in Queensland. While an incursion would normally be considered a disaster, how these bee, bees defied the odds could instead prove to be the saviour of native species on the brink of destruction. University of Sydney research fellow Dr Ross Glog tells Megan Hughes what they found studying the bees.
14: What we can see evidence from in this uh, genetic data is that Yes, there was very likely just a single swarm that made it into Australia accidentally. It would have been a stowaway on a boat or something like that around about 15 years ago. So that would have been one queen who's the reproductive individual and her kind of cohort of worker bees. And from that one swarm, we have today this this very large population And what we would describe that as, therefore, is a genetic bottleneck when just one individual kind of has made it into the country, in this case, that one queen and her workers, and they're the kind of progenitors of all of the colonies that have come subsequently. And one thing that happens, therefore, is you get really low genetic diversity compared to the native population where these bees came from which in this case originally would have been java indonesia and what we wanted to understand is okay well how can how can populations kind of adapt and respond when they've been through that sort of squeeze that genetic bottleneck how have these bees been able to survive for, with having low genetic diversity and that there hasn't been something that's sort of wiped out their population at any point there's a a general consensus that kind of having genetic diversity in a population is important for its um, kind of adaptive response, its resilience to environmental changes, for example. And that's because natural selection acts on the kind of variation that's within a population. So if there's kind of no variation there, there's nothing for selection to work with, and the population might be in trouble. I guess in this case, one kind of really interesting thing that's come out of this study is demonstrating that even when there's really low genetic diversity compared to quote-unquote normal, what we would see in their native range, there is still enough there for selection to work with. And we can see in this population, natural selection has acted on certain genes in these honeybees, and it's quite hard to pinpoint exactly what they do. We can see them in the genome. They're probably related to things like reproduction and um, foraging behaviour. So even with the really, really low diversity, natural selection has found things to work with so that this population has responded and and thrived.
8: Can you, I guess, extrapolate this data and and apply it to other threatened species in Australia?
14: Yes and no, as always with these things. I mean, I don't think that we should take away from our study that genetic diversity is not important. You know, it definitely is. But I do think there's a silver lining from kind of looking at invasive species, which are generally the species we wish they were not adapting so quickly. <laughs> but the fact that they can do it, so the fact that some species can respond really rapidly, even when genetic diversity is low, or even when they've suffered these kind of um, temporary population crashes... The fact that they can do it does, I think, give some hope that other species, the ones that we are trying to conserve, can sometimes do it too. It's demonstrating that, you know, maybe we, we do underestimate sometimes just how powerful natural selection can be in getting populations to respond, even when a lot of genetic diversity is gone.
1: And that was University of Sydney Research Fellow Dr. Roz Glog speaking to Megan Hughes there. And it's that time of the afternoon to welcome Joel Reinberger into the studio. Hello there.
13: Hello there, Fiona. Are you a horse rider?
1: Yes, I am. You are a horse rider.
13: (laughs) What is the furthest you have ever ridden your horse?
1: Oh, goodness. I've done like uh, a day... Well, no, no, probably three quarters of a day riding. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. you know. So you, but I'm not you an colour, endurance I, I ride, know, 20 rider. twenty k's or something yeah, in that time. Yes, yeah.
13: We're, look, we're talking to a, a young Tasmanian who is about to ride a horse across Canada. Oh wow! Now I, I first That'd met, be cool. met Steph uh, a few years back when she's uh, she's from like, young lady from New Norfolk when she was about to start her ride across Australia, and I kind of tracked her and caught up with her every few weeks, and she rode east coast to west coast across the Nullarbor, like through New South Wales and right. down and across the Nullarbor. Wow. Incredible ride with a horse <laughs> and a must pack horse. She some
1: good horses too.
13: Oh, yeah, yeah. This is, you know, her horse was a uh, Mr. Richard was yes. the name of her horse, the, the, her main horse that she was riding. And a, I think she had a pack horse as well uh, behind her. So an incredible journey. And she's going to do it across Canada. So... It's the opposite conditions. She went through desert here. She's going to be going over mountains and well, hoping. Well, that's what I was
1: thinking. It's very mountainous, isn't it?
13: and snow in the mountains. You've got yes. to get across the mountains in time. It's like the pilgrims arriving in America. we got to get across <laughs> before the snow closes the oh pass. Oh, my goodness. So she's doing that. and Plus, of course, bears. Yes. Cougars. Yes. Wolves. Yeah, wolves,
1: <laughs> Yeah, I know there's wolves. Uh, my daughter was over there and camping near wolves, which I wasn't impressed with.
13: No, <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 that's right. you, know, you just got to remember, if you're going into a place with predators – you don't have to be faster than the predator. You just have to be faster than the person you're with.
1: You don't want to camp near a rubbish bin either. Uh,
13: no, no, absolutely, because absolutely the not. Because
1: bears like the rubbish bins, apparently.
13: So, uh, so she has, but uh, she's going with a friend this time, and they have bought horses online. Oh my They've, goodness! Like, so, and so they're going <laughs> well, go to go to Canada. it going to be any good? Well, that's the question, isn't it? So I'm <laughs> going to find out. Might have out. got a
1: bucking bronco.
13: So well, that's so. What happens if you meet the horse and you don't like it, and it mm. doesn't like you, and it bites you every time you turn your mm. backside backside to it? So <laughs> we're, we're going to find that out and see how Steph Gabe is going to cope with that. Uh, also today, talking to the author of this uh, rather gorgeous book.
1: Oh wow! Great
13: idea for a cookbook. It's uh, called What Can I Bring? What
1: Can I Bring? Yes
13: and, yeah. s- and so, you know, every Good time right you get here. invited to something And you get asked, oh, what can I bring? So, of course, uh, the author, Sophie Hansen, is a dab hand with the pastry Because oh, right, you can put yes. just about everything in pastry
1: true, true And there's an
13: awful lot of events you go to where what you want to bring Is something that can be held in one hand So you can have a drink in the other and just eat in that okay. way Okay,
1: I, I usually say I'll bring a salad because I'm not a dessert person uh, I mean, but I do take nibbles too Do,
13: do you mean you don't? You don't make dessert, not or really, you don't no. like dessert.
1: Ah, uh, I don't mind dessert. I just don't make them. I don't, you're, not,
13: you're not a dessert lover, are you? No, a weirdo, <laughs> weirdo brain.
1: But the rest of my family are really big on cakes and desserts.
13: And okay, well, the, look, the the, <laughs> the winning cake to win people over in this is a chocolate cake with meringue on top.
1: Oh, that does sound nice.
13: See, I, I, I love that idea too. Of you, you turn up to you know a potluck or to the barbecue and. Uh, you bring something that completely outshines all the work the host has done <laughs> that's
1: really hard <laughs>
13: <laughs> or you know you come along across to the the school bake sale and the the thing that you've bought sells out in like 5 minutes and your kid gets to go home
1: <laughs> too bad if you're the one whose whose plate doesn't sell out <laughs> yeah that's
13: right that's right yeah no one likes the cockroach clusters mum we need to do better next year <laughs> So, you're going to be talking to Sophie Hansen about the fantastic things that she's cooking. Also, going to be meeting a a, a chemist who's uh, just won a couple of prizes from UTAS, who's figured out how to 3D print glass without needing to have it at 1700 degrees Celsius. Yeah, yeah. Amazing idea.
1: Fantastic. Thank you. You'll see Joel, you'll hear Joel this afternoon, and please join the Country Hour again tomorrow.
3: Subscribe to the ABC Radio Hobart e-newsletter today. You'll get exclusive content, a first peek at the latest competitions and program highlights delivered straight to your inbox. Now
0: we're
4: talking Hobart.
3: To subscribe, head to abc.net.au.